To Habakkuk chapter 3, we come this morning where we left off at verse 1. Here we find Habakkuk um, undergoing a sort of sea change. The tone of Habakkuk, as those of you who have uh, heard the earlier messages will notice, now takes a decided turn. All along in this book, he's been wrestling with God in prayer. Now the fact that he is praying does not change, but now he does so with a decidedly, a remarkably different tone. Habakkuk falls on his knees, as it were, drops his head and pours out his soul before the Lord in prayer. Not wrestling anymore, not questioning, but submitting and supplicating. We will listen closely to this prayer for the lessons we must learn from Habakkuk about what it means truly to pray. These words have been preserved for us these thousands of years that they might come to us this morning living and active to our very hearts this morning. But first, to prayer ourselves. Our Father, like Habakkuk, we pray that you will give us uh, grace to pray, submitting to you, opening our hearts to you, falling before you, receiving your word, your instruction, your truth. And not only receiving it, Father, not only being hearers of your word, but doers of it as well. Grant us this grace, we pray, our Father, for your kingdom's sake and for the glory of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What an excellent and exemplary prayer comes to us from the lips and the pen of Habakkuk here when once he submits to the will of God for him and for his people. It is one of the greatest in the Bible, like to those of Nehemiah and Ezra, the ones we studied many months ago, of the same caliber as the prayers of Abraham or of David or Solomon in the temple. But to appreciate this prayer the best, we will need to remember the context in which it was pressed from the heart of this prophet. Habakkuk, you will remember, prophesied during the days preceding the fall of the kingdom of Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, has already been carried into captivity uh, by Assyria, and now Judah, disobedient and rebellious, unjust and unfaithful Jerusalem, will also come under the punishing hand of God this time in the form of invading Babylonians who would shame her and destroy her. When first we came to this prophet, we found him calling out and crying to God for the sake of his people. Do you not see, O God? Do you you not hear the injustice, the sin, the rebellion of your people against you and against one another? How long? Until you turn your people from their wicked ways, was Habakkuk's first plea, in essence. 
But God did see. And God who sees and hears everything did hear. And he answered. Though the answer took Habakkuk's breath away. The wicked Chaldeans would be the instrument by which God's people would be punished. And God himself, God himself was raising them up for that very purpose. And so Habakkuk's questioning takes another turn. How, how can you do this, O oh God? How can you raise up a, a ruthless and a wicked, reckless, idolatrous nation to fall upon your own chosen ones? It was and is, as we saw some weeks ago, the question of questions, the age-old question of evil and God's concurrent goodness and perfection in the face of and even sovereignly ruling over evil. The words still burn upon our ears from the holy God saying, I am raising up the Chaldeans. How can you do this, O oh God, was the question. And then Habakkuk stations himself waiting for the answer to his prayer, from which example we have learned always to pray expectantly, to pray waiting for the answer, for it shall surely come. In time it does come to Habakkuk and those God-breathed words, those inspired words that have survived and even guided the course of history to this day. Behold, his soul, that is the soul of the wicked, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. In other words, the Chaldeans will receive their comeuppance. Woe to them! Woe to them! Woe to them! Five times over God says it. Their sin will Find them out and will be visited upon their own heads. But those who seek the Lord, ah, those who walk with the Lord in faith and obedience to him, they will live. They will be saved. Now here in chapter 3, we've come to a drastic turn in Habakkuk's prophecy. Really, we came to it a few weeks back in chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And that is where we find Habakkuk now before the Lord in, in hushed tones. The wrestling, the questioning, the, the doubting, the, the struggle, the wonderings have all been swept away as the tide rises of submission in Habakkuk's, in Habakkuk's heart, and out of that quieted heart now comes forth praise, holy fear, and supplication. How much like our own lives, isn't it? It's the life of Habakkuk. Life always lived on the ebb and flow of events of concerns, of questions, of doubtings and fears and struggles on the one hand that wrench our hearts and on the other peace and certainty 
and hope and confidence and healing on the other. Some days wrestling with God and falling down on our faces before him with tears. And other days waiting quietly upon him, but always to some degree the characteristics of Habakkuk's prayer here should be found in our prayers as well. Look at him with me now and go back to the basics of prayer. Begin by noticing first that Habakkuk's prayer and ours must be humble prayer. O Lord, he says, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Remember the struggling, remember the wrestling, even arguing with God that Habakkuk did in prayer. And then the watching on the tower for the answer to his prayers. They were needful at the time. They were not wrong. They were not sinful. Nor are we when we wrestle with God, even cry out to him, God, why? How can you do this? We have the example of, the prime example of God's own son for those kind of prayers. But now the wrestling is over, the questioning is done, and, and as if exhausted by the recent bout, Habakkuk humbles himself before God without protest. I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Not a servile fear, of course, not a sort of cringing and shivering in the corner, but a filial fear of a son for his father, the, the awe, the heartfelt humble affection before the power and the might and the, the majesty and the grandeur of the glory and the holiness of God. An attitude, by the way, not only fitting prayer, but all worship as well. Habakkuk's not going to defend himself. He's not going to defend his country, especially in her sin. He's not going to ask God to reverse his judgment because Judah, well, at least she's not as sinful as they are, those Chaldeans. No, instead he has come, as we almost come in our lives, to a recognition that whatever God does, it is right. It is right. It is perfectly right. It is just. For he is perfectly, absolutely just. And when he disciplines, as he is about to discipline Judah for her sin, he is perfectly right and good in that as well. No self-righteousness here, no presumption to know the ways or the will of God. Certainly not perfectly, simply submission. Humbly rendered. Now that sounds... Simple enough, doesn't it? But you experienced saints in prayer know that it is anything but simple, nor is it easy to arrive at this. When we think most clearly about our prayer, about our prayer life, I think every one of us must confess that we see in ourselves far too much of the Pharisee praying with his eyes, proudly turned up to heaven, I thank you that I'm not like one of these. And far too little of the tax collector with his face to the ground, crying out, have mercy on this sinner. 
What is it that brings us to such a place in our prayers? Well, it is another simple yet punishingly difficult task. It is taking our eyes off of the problems, taking our eyes off of the circumstances, indeed, most of all, taking our eyes off of ourselves and placing and fixing them upon God. We love to look at our problems, don't we? We love to spend hours on end rolling our problems first this way and that before our view and thinking about them. We think that somehow if we stare at our problems long enough, we'll solve them. Or if we talk about them long enough, they will depart, maybe bored of our conversation. But look at Habakkuk. As long as his eyes are on Judah, as long as his eyes are in himself, as long as his eyes are on Chaldea, his soul is vexed. He finds trouble aplenty. But when he turns his eyes on the Lord, when he fixes his eyes on God and not on men, on his Lord in heaven and not on the problems, but on the splendor of the holiness of God, then comes peace. But he stops mulling over and thinking on the sinfulness of the Chaldeans and starts thinking on God and his justice and his goodness, then his heart goes from perplexed to peaceful. And it all begins by humbling ourselves before the Lord in holy fear, setting our eyes not on earthly things, but on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's the first point. Second, note well that Habakkuk's prayer is an adoring prayer. I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. What is Habakkuk doing? In prayer he is worshiping God. He is adoring God. Now, we Christians are immersed, we in particular, in our American culture, and so we're pragmatists. We like to get down to business. We've got, we've got an outline. We've got a list. We've got an agenda. We've got a plan. We don't like lingering long in any place and particularly in prayer. But as a result, are not our prayers, I must confess it, I think you must as well, are not our prayers often poverty-stricken prayers? Prayers that sound a whole lot more like the agenda from the local zoning and planning commission than like adoring worship. More like a grocery list than a biblical prayer. Why? Because our prayers are short on adoration, short on worship and praise. I've probably reminded you before about that handy acrostic for effective prayer, ACTS, A-C-T-S. They stand for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. It's not an iron grid for prayer. It's not that all prayers must be measured by this acrostic, of course, but I have found it helpful in my own prayers, and I think you will as well, and some of you indeed have told me you have. Let every prayer begin with adoration, with praise, with the worship of God, with the recollection back to God of his attributes, of his infinity, of his 
eternality, of his unchanging nature, of his being and his wisdom and his power, his holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I tell you, any prayer begun by adoring God, by worshiping God, cannot go far afield later on. It simply cannot, in fact, because it begins by setting the Lord before us. It begins by bringing us into the very presence of God and will certainly keep us from that Christmas list effect of prayer. I want this, I want that, and this, and, and this. Spend time in your prayers, Christians, especially at the beginning, simply praising God for who he is, for his worthiness to be praised and to be glorified. Oh, come, let us adore him. And then, and only then, let us pray prayers that, like Habakkuk's, are prayers third of supplication. After all, God has told us, has he not? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He wants your requests. He wants your supplications. But for what shall you ask? Shall we ask the Lord for a Cadillac? Shall we ask the Lord for, for fancier toys? For bigger earthly prizes? Well, to pray the way Habakkuk prays is to answer the question before it's even asked. You cannot begin prayer with true humiliation and adoration high to the Lord only to end it with petitions like I'll take them in tens and twenties. A prayer begun with your head in the kingdom of God will end that way too. Which is precisely why Habakkuk finishes his prayer with prayer and supplication for revival. Your work, O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years Revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk's main concern in his supplication to the Lord is this. He has seen the kingdom of God as it is, and he has seen the kingdom of God by faith as it can be and will be, and filled with that vision, it overflows from his lips and forms his very prayer. Send revival, O Lord, on your work. Send revival. A prayer, by the way, that is before us every Wednesday evening in this house of prayer for revival with reformation for his church. And we need it. How desperately we need it. The church stands in desperate need of reformation and revival today, now. Almost indistinguishable in any meaningful way are Christians from the culture around us today. In fact, if anything, a recent study indicates that when it comes to marriage and personal relationships and behavior, the church evangelicalism in America is actually faring worse than the world. 
We are living today, brothers and sisters, in a day of small things. But do not let the widespread mediocrity of the church of our day fool you into thinking that she has not lived in other days at a much higher pitch and deeper devotion and fidelity to her Lord and Savior. This week at General Assembly, the president of Covenant Seminary and a minister in our own presbytery, Dr. Brian Chapel, presented his findings over the past 20 years of serving at our school in St. Louis. For instance, a huge percentage of incoming seminary students from our own conservative churches, mind you, many of them, Dr. Chapel said, have never known what it is to have a father. Raised either in single parent families or in families where their fathers simply were too busy to spend time with their children, these men are now graduating from our seminary and becoming pastors in our churches with no personal model of fatherhood. Another example Dr. Chapel mentioned, many incoming seminary students today are accustomed to watching entertainment that you and I would find not only unfit but downright verboten, while the minds of the children of our churches are hardly formed by the word of God at all. Every year, it, the incoming seminary students are uh, subjected to a, a test, a basic English Bible test to find out how proficient they are in the scripture. 20 years ago, when Dr. Chapel started there, one-third of the incoming seminary students had to take remedial Bible classes before they started their theological training. Today, two-thirds of incoming ministerial students have to take remedial Bible classes who have come from our churches because they do not know the scripture. These things are looking bad for the church, at least in America, but that, according to John D. Witt, is the very point at which revivals usually begin in bad times. Surveying the landscape of church history, he writes, one thinks of what took place in the Reformation period the greatest time of revival and reformation in the history of the church. We know the condition of the church before the ministry of Martin Luther. Alexander VI, the Borgia Pope, was in the Vatican. He filled the palace with his own illegitimate children and did not hesitate to lift them up to positions of esteem and influence. It was far more, a far more reprehensible thing in those days for a minister of religion to be married than to keep a concubine. Alexander VI was succeeded by Julius II, the warrior pope so pillared by Erasmus. Then came Leo X, the Medici pope, who said, God has given us the papacy. Let us enjoy it. That was the attitude of the leadership 
of the church of Jesus Christ in those days. All across Europe, the church was in a ruinous condition. People were suspicious, uh, superstitious and ignorant. They were looking here and there for the answers to their spiritual problems. They sought answers in mysticism, in the relics of the saints, in holy days, in the purchases of indulgences, but all to no avail. There had been the distant rolling thunder of revival and dimly perceptible flashes of the lightning of ministries of men like John Wycliffe in England and John Huss of Bohemia. But it was not until the early 16th century that God had mercy on his church. Luther arose, groping through the dry land of the religious teachings of his time, and would not be satisfied with anything short of the pure water that only the Lord Jesus Christ can give. Luther had been terrified by the righteousness of God. I could not love a righteous God, Luther said. I hated him. But Luther persisted. He studied in what he called the dear Paul until he came to understand what we considered just a few weeks ago, that the just shall live by faith. And then he bestrode Europe like a colossus. With the mighty hammer of God's word, he shattered the corrupt ecclesiastical establishment and held high the banner of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and his soul sufficiency to deliver people from their sins. It was on that dry ground that the water of God's reviving Holy Spirit fell in the 16th century. Jonathan Edwards had something to say about this as well. Edward succeeded his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, as minister of the church in Northampton, Massachusetts. In Stoddard's long ministry, there had been five periods of quickening, but for many years after the fifth of those quickenings, there was barrenness in the church and aridity. Edward speaks of the licentiousness which prevailed among the young people, the breakdown in family structure, the failure of family worship, the contentions, the jealousies, the divisions that marked the community. The situation of Northampton was marked by a spiritual need that only the Holy Spirit could remedy, and he did. There too, the Holy Spirit came down and did his reviving work. The same was true in England in the 18th century. Bishop J.C. Ryle in his Christian Leaders of the 18th century tells of the great lawyer Blackstone, whose name will be familiar to any who have studied law. Early in the reign of King George III, Blackstone visited the principal churches of London to see what was being preached. His report, there is no more Christianity in the discourses he has heard than in the writings of Cicero. And it is impossible to discover from them what he heard, from what he heard, rather, whether the preachers were followers of Muhammad or Confucius or Jesus Christ. That was the scene on which revival burst forth through the ministries of, John Whit of George um, Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley. Habakkuk found himself in a spiritually dry desert. 
and for all of its fads and flashy fashions, modern American evangelicalism is approaching that desert quickly. But prayer will turn the tide. When we have set our eyes upon God humbly, adoringly, petitioning him to bring revival and to bring reformation, to pour out his rain upon our dry ground. May God receive just that sort of prayer from us, brothers and sisters, from our closets, from our tables, from our sanctuaries. Prayers humble, prayers adoring, prayers petitioning him for the advancement of his kingdom and for the glory of King Jesus. And that in the meantime, in wrath, he remember mercy. Amen.